0: Ron Newman is an example of a foreign service officer. When he comes to speak here, one of his, I predict one of his main points that he'll want to discuss is the need to retain a professional diplomacy.
1: Welcome to the Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesota with the world. Our mission is to advance international understanding and engagement in every corner of the state. We do this with a variety of programs, including our public events, K-12 education programs, great decisions discussion groups, and professional exchanges. To learn more, visit our website at globalminnesota.org. I'm Nicholas Sayan, Marketing and Communications Manager for Global Minnesota, and today we're continuing our new podcast series by interviewing some of the amazing people Global Minnesota connects with as we work together to bring Minnesota to the world and the world to Minnesota. Next month, some of Global Minnesota's staff will be participating in the Army War College's International Strategic Crisis Negotiation Exercise, also known as the ISNI, at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. This is a mock negotiation exercise where college students represent countries involved in a current international relations conflict and attempt to resolve their disputes using diplomacy. The international crisis topic for this upcoming SNE centers on the lingering geopolitical dispute on the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. In this and previous exercises, some Global Minnesota staff have participated as team mentors to help guide students in diplomacy best practices. But this year, Global Minnesota is excited to also be putting together two public events to help bring the discussion of these critical issues to all Minnesotans. First, Global Minnesota will be hosting a free public event featuring the former ambassador to Cyprus, Kathleen Doherty, who will provide an update on the current situation in Cyprus and discuss how the various countries involved view their diplomatic priorities and red lines. This will be held at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs on October 19th. Then, Global Minnesota will host another free public event in partnership with the American Academy of Diplomacy featuring former Ambassador and Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Ron Newman. Ambassador Newman served as ambassador to Algeria, Bahrain, and Afghanistan, and will be discussing the ways in which we can modernize our diplomatic efforts and support citizen diplomacy here in Minnesota. This will also be held at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs on October 30th. But on today's episode, I'm joined by none other than the local organizer for the ISNI event, retired U.S. Navy Commander John Olson. John is also a teacher-in-residence at Carleton College and host of the weekly radio show National Security This Week on KYMN Radio. My other guest today is also well-known to the global Minnesota community. Tom Hansen is a retired Foreign Service Officer and currently serves as the Diplomat-in-Residence for the University of Minnesota Duluth. Tom is also the featured speaker at our annual Foreign Policy Update event, which provides a broad, comprehensive overview of world events and foreign policy each year. We're excited to announce the date of the next annual foreign policy update, but you'll have to wait until the end of the episode to hear that part. They've joined to give you an exclusive preview of these two upcoming diplomacy events, the current situation in Cyprus, and how Global Minnesota and the ISNI program help to inform and engage the next generation of foreign policy professionals. So John and Tom, welcome to both of you.
2: Thanks, Nick. This is John Olson. I'm very excited to be with you on this podcast.
0: Yes. Thank you, Nick Tom here. And uh, this is a great opportunity. It's an important topic. It's a great event uh, that we're looking forward to uh, that John is organizing.
1: Great. Happy to have you both. And John, happy to return the favor as I've been on your radio show twice already. So John, why don't you start by telling us a bit more about your background and how you got involved in the ISNI program?
2: So uh, as you mentioned, I'm a retired uh, commander in the U.S. Navy. Uh, I, I spent uh, 21 years on active duty after being commissioned out of Annapolis back in 1990. Uh, my last uh, tour uh, as, a, as an active duty naval officer was as the U.S. Naval Attaché at the U.S. Embassy in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, so I was sort of a, a military diplomat in that capacity and uh, uh, had some great experiences over there in Finland working on these, these kinds of issues that diplomats uh, deal with every day. Uh, when I came back home to Minnesota, I got involved in uh, in teaching uh, at Metropolitan State University and then also at Carleton College. And uh, I decided in uh, early spring of 2017 that I would uh, use my post-9-11 uh, GI bill and go back to school and earn a master's in public affairs at the Humphrey School. And uh, I saw that this uh, international strategic crisis negotiation exercise was available as a, as a one-credit course. It was organized at the time by a retired uh, career diplomat, uh, Dr. Mary Curtin, and so I signed up for the course. And uh, somehow she found out I, I was in—I was taking the class as a student and what my background was. And she came to me and she said, "You—you you can't do this as a student. <laughs> you, you have way too much experience." <laughs> She said, I, "I want I want to use you as one of the country team mentors. Would you be willing to mentor uh, your fellow grad students as as a you know as a mentor?" I said, "I said I would be honored to do that." So I've been participating in the ISNI uh, pretty much every year since 2017, uh, mostly as a country team mentor. Last year, uh, she asked me to serve as the UN special representative convening uh, the ISNI. And then she announced her retirement and she reached out to me to ask me if I'd be interested in actually running uh, the International Strategic Crisis Negotiation Exercise uh, for the Humphrey School. And the Humphrey School signed off on it. I I jumped at the opportunity. I'm really excited about what we're going to do with the program.
1: That's great. Did you get the credit for that course then?
2: I did, they gave me one credit for serving as a country team mentor. So (laughs) it was a bonus plan for me. (laughs) It's really more of a, you know, when you serve as a country team mentor, and I think Tom will back me up on this, you use a a career's worth of experience and you try and help the graduate students to think about what it is they're trying to accomplish in this diplomatic negotiation. And the whole process goes very quickly and the students, it's like drinking from a fire hose, trying to understand what they're supposed to do. Maybe, maybe Tom has some thoughts on that as well.
0: No, I just I agree with John about the uh, being a mentor to these students. You know, they're so full of curiosity and, and motivated, and so it's very exciting uh, for the mentors. I think I, I learned, I've learned a lot in the process. Um, so in my case, you know, I entered the foreign service as a as a State Department diplomat out of grad school. I took the foreign service exam, which is the usual way of coming in. Um, The Foreign Service has five uh, specialties or tracks, political, economic, consular, administrative, public affairs, and I did political. So uh, in my career, I was mainly in Europe. I was in East Germany when there was one. I was in Moscow, Paris, up in Scandinavia. Um, And pretty much my career overlapped with the last phase of the Cold War and then the beginning of the much more complicated and actually much more dangerous phase that we're in now. Uh, You know, much more multipolar world. Uh, In some ways, the the Cold War seems uh, kind of simple compared to all we're dealing with today. And the Cyprus conflict is a really, really, really good example of all the nuances and complexities uh, we have today. Um, In my career, one thing that I most valued was language training. Uh, The State Department, if you're a Foreign Service officer, you get language training before every assignment. And I think that's something that attracts people to the profession. I was uh, lucky enough to serve in various branches. So in addition to state, I served up in Congress for about three years uh, on the foreign affairs committee. And I was also able to uh, serve as the director for NATO and uh, European affairs at the Atlantic council, which is a think tank in DC. And so, uh, you know, as a diplomat, you obviously deal with other countries and you have to kind of know other countries on their own terms. You need a certain amount of empathy uh, to to influence other com- uh, countries but actually, a lot of the diplomacy is within Washington itself and at embassy at embassies because uh, every and john i 'm sure can attest to this every sort of branch of the government has its own culture and its own way of doing things. And so being from state, dealing with Congress, that was very different. Dealing with the military was easier, but also a different uh, agencies uh, also. So that was one of the most, I mean, it's diplomacy domestically and um, and overseas. So uh, yeah, it's a very gratifying career. Uh, we'll talk more about diplomacy a little later, I believe, but that's in a nutshell, that's what I did.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic. I would I wouldn't have thought about John. Do you uh, have you encountered that dynamic between uh, various branches of government, the military, and uh, the foreign service?
2: Yeah, there's there's no question about it. I mean, uh, Tom and I partnered up with uh, Ambassador was- Wilson to teach a course at Carleton College this past spring. It was called Statecraft: The Tools of National Power, and uh, we we covered you know diplomacy, the power of information sharing, or not sharing. Uh, military and economic power in that course uh, with the undergrad students at carleton college and i think one of the things that that was evident very early in the process uh, between ambassador wilson and, and and tom and me was that the two of them come from the culture of the of diplomacy and i come from the culture of the military where we're supposed to go out there and break things and and uh, you know achieve military objectives to then turn it over to the diplomats and one of the things that i heard early in the discussions with our students was the way uh, Ross and Tom would f- would frame these challenges, these security challenges and whatnot around the world, and and when they were briefing the students, like Tom, I remember referring to it as you know somebody somebody who's going back in history referred to it as tending the garden. Diplomacy mm-hmm. is you're wow. you're they're sort of maintaining your garden. It never stops. You never you can't ever really quit uh, maintaining your garden, tending the garden. Whereas in the military. We're given specific objectives. achieve that objective. and once you've done that, you've accomplished the mission. And then you move on to the next mission, whatever that might be. So there's two very different uh, cultures at play there between the military and, and the Department of State, uh, both of which frankly deliver incredibly important tools to uh, our you know the President of the United States, our, our national security leadership uh, in how we engage with the rest of the world. I would tell you that even as a, as a career naval officer and a career intelligence officer uh, uh, to boot, uh, somebody who, who was lucky enough to be successfully screened for and trained by the CIA as a case officer and to go do strategic level clandestine human intelligence operations for DOD, I would much rather see the U.S. government pour lots more money into diplomacy and expanding the Department of State uh, because they're going to keep us out of conflict, and that's a better way to approach uh, world affairs. That's that's just my my two cents. But uh, yes, very different cultures between those two uh, government yeah. entities. So what you're really talking about is the interplay of uh, Tom. I'm missing I'm missing the term here. Uh, the uh, interagency process. That's what it is. Yes, yes. Yeah, interagency process. <laughs> yeah.
0: And Congress, Congress is very much a different culture <laughs> it's yeah. Oh, yeah. for 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 any government employee uh, to to deal with so it's a it's fascinating it's really fun i mean the domestic dynamics are as are challenging and as as interesting as the as the foreign dynamics
1: yeah and one thing just of course i always like to note is uh, the size of that federal foreign affairs budget that funds state department is less than one percent of the entire for, federal foreign affairs budget so um i think you've got yeah. a lot of uh sympathetic people in this audience who would agree that we ought to fund that robustly. Well, and related to that is, of course, the CISNI program. So, John, what can you tell us about the program and and how does it prepare young students for uh, a variety of careers involving foreign affairs?
2: Yeah, so interestingly enough, the International Strategic Crisis Negotiation Exercise, or the ISNI as we refer to it, is a program that was started at the U.S. Army War College. And uh, one of the things I find fascinating being a Naval War College grad is that the Army War College developed that program and they export it to mostly to graduate schools all across the country. And they don't actually use it uh, on campus at the Army War College at Carlisle Barracks in Pennsylvania. And they did it, uh, you know, and this was strategic thinking on the part of the United States Army, but they realized that there are students all across the country who really don't understand the interplay between the Department of State and DOD and, and how the interagency process works. And how the tools of national power are applied in the art and science of statecraft, and so they said, let's let's help uh, these schools of public affairs and and you know national security studies and whatnot at the graduate level all around the country. So they send these teams out to run the international strategic crisis negotiation exercise, and there's about eight different scenarios that are constantly updated, and they mirror what really happens in the world, like Nagorno-Karabakh between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Uh, the Kashmir situation, North Korea, for instance, South China Sea. So this Cyprus scenario is one that we've never actually done at uh, the Humphrey School before. We've done pretty much all of the other uh, crisis negotiation exercise scenarios. So this will be a new one for everybody involved, which is great. But the idea behind it is that you get about 50 grad students You divide them up uh, roughly evenly in numbers amongst, in this case, for the Cyprus scenario, six different teams, country teams, with a student actually in charge of their their peers in the graduate program. And that student is responsible for organizing his or her team, uh, for thinking through what it is they need to achieve in the stated objectives from their foreign minister or, in the case of a U.S. team, the Secretary of State. And then they need to come up with a way for how you're going to execute that diplomatic negotiation in round after round after round of negotiations, typically about seven rounds of negotiations. And I, maybe Tom will back me up on this because he's he's been a, a country team mentor just as many times as I have, maybe more. Uh, but the amount of information that the students learn in each round of negotiations is almost overwhelming. Uh, it, it can paralyze a team trying to figure out. Okay, what do we do to rethink how we're going to achieve our objectives into the next round and the round after that? Uh, uh, Tom, what what has been your experience on on that count as a country team mentor?
0: Well, I, I I've been very impressed with the informational background that the the students are given, the teams are given. Both, I mean, very, very focused and and complete histories of the conflict, um, and then ample. Instructions. You know, each team gets different instructions with different red lines and different goals, which they are to pursue. And so, and and of course, each team has no idea what the other teams have received in terms of their background and goals, which is a very realistic thing. So, I've been in every exercise. I've been very impressed with what they bring together uh, in terms of. And I mean, you, you learn a lot about the conflict uh, in in the process of um, of working it through. And um, of course, John, I'm sure you'll explain the role of the foreign minister. And uh, you know, I mean, in other words, the, the, the students can't do whatever the heck they want. Maybe you can describe that a little bit. Yeah.
2: So what's interesting about the, the exercise is the idea behind it is that the, there's a crisis that has come to a head in a frozen conflict, in this case, Cyprus. And so the UN has, is convening a summit. And the six, uh, quote unquote, country teams that are represented are the uh, Greek Cypriots, the Turkish Cypriots, the Greeks, the Turks, uh, the Brits, and the United States. And so the country team will be d- divided up, probably eight or so students uh, per country team. And there is a UN special representative who will convene the summit. And in this case, it's Ambassador Ross Wilson. Uh, he has agreed to do that. So, and he's done that role a number of times in the past. So the students will, you know, they come together and the goal is to try and negotiate your way through to get to achieve your your end goals. Now, the Army War College, the person who sort of runs the team, that individual, uh, he's a retired Navy commander, uh, Ed Zakowski. He actually does the role playing for each of those six country teams and serves as the foreign minister or in the case of the United States, the secretary of state. For each of those teams, so he is privy to what each team is trying to do and the strategies they're trying to employ, the things they'd like to offer other countries to try and, you know, make a diplomatic breakthrough. So that's part of how the Army War College kind of controls what's happening in the the simulated uh, negotiation exercise to make sure that the the students aren't just you know <laughs> running off the rails. And doing something like, uh, you know, we're going to agree to, to build nuclear weapons with this other country or something like that, right? <laughs> something crazy. So there are control mechanisms that are in place uh, delivered by the Army War College. And then, like I mentioned, you know, Tom and I have each served as country team mentors. We're going to have two country team mentors for each country team. And these are deeply experienced career foreign service officers like Tom, uh, career intelligence officers uh, that, have, that have served in the U.S. intelligence community, uh, retired officers in the military, like me, even even people who have spent a career uh, in um, you know international commerce, uh, international corporations, lawyers, that kind of thing. We've got a nice mix of people who have a lot of experience in in, in the international arena, and so they are going to help the students to think through how they really want to approach this within the parameters of of what the Army War College controls, but also within the parameters of reality and the real lived experience of people like Tom, who can bring to bear this wealth of experience in helping students to think through the negotiating strategy and tactics. I mean, it, it is a great experience for the students to participate in.
0: And the mentors, uh, you know, try to kind of be in the background. It was not, not to take the lead too much. This is this is for the students. Yeah. But to, you know, to the extent that they come to the mentor with questions, you know, we are there for them. And, and a little bit too, I think in addition to the uh, Ed serving as the foreign minister, I think the mentor can also gently steer away from something that is maybe going off the rails, yeah. <laughs> but but it's very much a, a in the background role, ideally.
2: Yeah, the way we actually frame it for all the mentors is we want them to use the Socratic method, right? We really don't want them to step in and direct the student teams at all. We'd rather let the students maybe make some mistakes. If they start to get too far out over their ski tips, then the mentors will step in. But mostly it's an opportunity for the, you know, the highly experienced mentors to just probe the students with, you know, timely questions <laughs> and let them kind of work through the process of what it is they're trying to do uh, and their strategy and tactics.
1: Yeah. Uh, speaking from personal experience as a team mentor for the previous SNE, um, you know, it's a very rewarding and kind of insightful. Uh, experience. So, what are some of the these tips then that you can provide the students that they should keep in mind while they're working through this exercise?
2: Well, we're we're going to try and do some some unique things this time. Uh, we've always had just one uh, mentor for each uh, country team in the past. This time, we're trying two. Uh, I think it worked. It worked well when we did it at Carleton College this past spring for a South China Sea scenario, and and so we decided to go ahead and give it a shot this year with uh, the ISNI at, at the Humphrey School. Uh, The other thing we're doing, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about this uh, with Ambassador Doherty coming in, but we're going to prep the students beyond what they would just get in the way of reading materials by by holding this uh, Global Minnesota Humphrey School of Public Affairs joint event on Cyprus about a week prior to the start of the exercise. And as the instructor uh, at the Humphrey School uh, running this thing, I, I'm going to assign that event to all the students who take the International Strategic Crisis Negotiation Exercise. I can't make it mandatory, but I can certainly heavily emphasize the benefits of attending that a week prior as they think about the real world scenario. Uh, we're also going to do some other things, and and since you know Nick, you represent Global Minnesota. Tom Hansen's here as president of uh, Committee on Foreign Relations, Minnesota. We're hoping to bring in some some career experienced diplomats and others to engage with the students in in this unique aspect of the exercise that takes place at the Humphrey School. There's about an hour long, hour and 15 long uh, reception that takes place on the Friday night of this scenario that really very accurately mimics uh, the, the diplomatic receptions that take place all around the world whenever you have a summit like this. And the goal is to expose the graduate students to a whole wide range of other people other than just the mentors. And we're going to ask these other role players to really put the students on the spot to defend their country's position on the Cyprus situation, and maybe to see if we can get them to say things they really shouldn't say (laughs) as part of a diplomatic (laughs) exercise. But that's good learning. That's a good learning experience for the students to go through. And I think it'll be a lot of fun for the participants from both Global Minnesota and, and, and CFR Minnesota as well.
1: Yeah, I think that'll be really exciting. And as you mentioned, it, it shows the ways in which diplomacy happens, really not just within the negotiation room, but oftentimes on the sidelines it, within mixers or just running into people in the hallways, how that in and of itself can facilitate a diplomatic breakthrough. So Tom, then this upcoming diplomacy simulation is of course on the conflict in Cyprus. So what can you tell us about this issue and, and how has it remained a static conflict for so long?
0: Well, you know, it's, even though it's been a frozen conflict for so long, it, it's, it's very relevant. I think it's an excellent choice uh, for this exercise. Uh, you know, it is, it's exactly the kind of frozen conflict that we hope Ukraine does not become. And there, and there is a danger that Ukraine will possibly, end up with something like this. Um, it's very indicative of the new geopolitics. Uh, the situation around the the Cyprus crisis has changed a lot, as I'll describe, and, and I'm sure is being woven into this exercise. Um, you know, things like energy issues suddenly now are a big part of it. Um, you know, you've got two NATO countries, uh, Turkey and and uh, Greece, that are at at loggerheads over this thing, and which which is a real cr- challenge for NATO always. So. Anyway, a lot of dimensions and, of course, in a lot of history. So, if you look at Cyprus, it really uh, goes back to as far back as 1571 when the Ottoman Turks defeated Venice uh, in in a war and took over control of Cyprus and controlled Cyprus for 300 years. It was part of the Turkish Ottoman Empire. Way back, you've got this mixed population of Greeks and Turks. 1878, the Ottomans released control of Cyprus. So, for 300 years, as I say, it was under the Ottomans. And even then, the the Greek Cypriots wanted to unite with Greece right then. It's something they call enosis. And we'll be hearing a lot about that in the exercise. They want union. They don't want independence. And they certainly don't want to be part of Turkey anymore. But who steps in but the Brits? Britain takes control of Cyprus and prevents any kind of unity. Well, finally, there was a violent revolt in 1960, and uh, Cyprus became independent. And already by 1964, there was fighting between the two communities. And so the UN came in, one of the very first UN peacekeeping forces in 1964, came in to Cyprus, and they have been there ever since. It's a 60-year and counting UN peacekeeping force. So things uh, really shifted when in Greece in 1967, there was a military coup, and and the generals took over in Greece with a fairly aggressive policy towards Cyprus, and they staged a coup in 1974 to make, basically to get a to bring Cyprus into, um, into Greece. And uh, the, the Turks responded by invading northern Cyprus. And I know this because I was in Henry Kissinger's office as it was happening, uh, when he was on the phone trying to handle this crisis as the, he was trying to get the Turkish flotilla to turn back, uh, and of course unsuccessfully. Um, and so the Turks occupied the northern one-third of the island things froze even more. And and just like in India, when it became independent, there was movement of population. The the Turks moved north. uh, The Greeks moved south. Uh, There was was all kinds of violence and things. And when when the dust settled, you had two political entities. Uh, Up in the north, uh, the Turkish Federated State of Cyprus, which became, in 1983, the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, a state recognized only by Turkey. The only country in the world that recognizes Northern Cyprus is Turkey. Meanwhile, in Southern Cyprus, they um, became the Republic of Cyprus, uh, grew closer and closer to the European Union, and joined the European Union in two thousand and four. So, just very briefly, the, the current major issues now are it's a, it's it's a frozen conflict. Uh, I think most people realize that it's real unrealistic to think of unifying uh, the country anytime soon. The the basic idea that The Turks uh, are proposing a bi-zonal, bi-communal federation. In other words, these two zones stay separate, but it's a federation under one government. Um, That's totally unacceptable to the Greeks who want still to unite with Greece. And then the geopolitics. You know, Greece is getting closer and closer to the EU and uh, working with France, for example, Israel and the U.S., to begin developing some of these gas reserves. And Turkey is going the other way. They're signing deals with Libya and other countries uh, to try to develop their areas. So this is a flashpoint potentially. And we are getting more and more militarily involved with Cyprus. And Turkey is, if anything, doubling down now on, uh, on its relationship with Northern Cyprus. And the new factor which is just coming in now is there are signs that Russia may start fishing in these troubled waters and may start getting closer relations to the northern turkic uh, republic in the north and um you know turkey plays a very delicate game between nato and between uh and between its relations with russia as we all know so i think this is an optimal moment for a cyprus scenario because all these things are happening um, in real
2: time and And I' and I got to add just a little bit there on sixty minutes a week or two ago, there was a great story on there, a little follow up some, from something they'd done back and I think it was in January talking about the uh, the Russian oligarchs who have laundered money through Cyprus and the fact that uh, I mean, un, uncounted billions of dollars uh, have have moved through the system in Cyprus. And so what Tom is saying about this, uh, the Russians trying to get closer to the Turkic side, the Turk northern end, that's also making really great sense. And if you're Russia and you're dealing with a war on your front doorstep with Ukraine, anything you can do to raise chaos inside the NATO alliance is to your benefit. So the more they can do to disrupt things just on Cyprus alone, uh, that's going to be to Russia's long-term strategic benefit and to the detriment of the NATO alliance.
1: So there's a lot of different dynamics there. So I'm Many. wondering what is the current US position then regarding Cyprus and you know, what role do ambassadors like Kathleen Doherty play in executing that vision as an ambassador?
0: Yeah, so our basic policy is you know, we, we've had diplomatic ties with the Republic of Cyprus, in other words, Greek Cyprus since 1960. And as I mentioned earlier, our relations are deepening, including our military and security relations uh with them we like the rest of the world we do not recognize uh northern cyprus as a country so that's so that's been an unchanging policy i think our goal is and it's this it's stated in our policy documents uh to reunify cyprus as a bi bicommunal federation and do this through the u.n um, and we also recognize that the eu has the main role here uh, in these negotiations, so we're supportive of everything the EU does. Uh, the problem there is that the Greeks don't trust Germany, and the Turks don't trust France. And so uh, <laughs> the EU role—I mean, it's kind of typically fractured diplomacy from the EU in this in this instance. So that that doesn't make our job any easier. Our relations with Turkey have become increasingly strained, which is also part of the equation now. It's ever since they they've been buying military equipment from Russia and such. So that's basically, but we're very much in favor of a reunified Cyprus uh, and kind of along the lines of what the Turks have proposed, actually. Um so someone like Kathleen as ambassador, you know she'd be right there on the ground in Cyprus, dealing with all the actors., uh, you know, an ambassador is kind of the eyes and the ears of um, of of Washington in any different country. Uh, an ambassador is theoretically the head of what they call the country team. This is all that many, many, many agencies are at every American embassy, military attaches, I and mean, even the FBI, even commerce, agriculture. All of them, those representatives report to their agencies back in Washington, right? And not to the State Department. But theoretically, a State Department ambassador is supposed to be in charge at an embassy, have access to all information. It doesn't always happen, but that is, that is theoretically uh, how it works. So she would be meeting with local officials, probably attending. Ah, uh, negotiating sessions when they took place, um, being in touch with all the embassies in town and uh, and spending a lot of her time managing the embassy itself. Also, another big part of an ambassador's chores is to answer the many, many, many requests from Congress, for congressional delegations to visit, for reports, mandated reports on all kinds of things. I mean, there's it's, uh, it's, is a lot that 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 is taken up uh, with 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 requests and demands from Congress for any any ambassador
1: that interagency process again
0: there it is yep it's a big part of what what an ambassador does
2: yeah and if i if i can just add because uh, i was i was lucky enough to serve under two ambassadors when i was in in helsinki finland but they really do uh serve an incredibly important person purpose as the kind of the president's appointee to that government i mean they, they refer to it as uh, ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary right and uh, so they sequence everything that the country team is doing. I mean, I, I can remember thinking to myself, look, I've got all these things I need to do for the Secretary of Defense uh, or the Chief of Naval Operations in my role as Naval Attaché while I was in Finland. But I didn't do anything without letting the ambassador know what I was going to be doing, because the ambassador has to help sequence all of the interagency processes that are taking place uh, in the relationship between the United States and Finland, as, an ex- as my example.
0: Yeah, and... You know, I just as an aside, it would be really nice if we had more ambassadors than we have. Uh, there are many, many, many posts around the world right now, including key posts, that do not have an ambassador. And it's a combination of administrations being s- slow to appoint, but also in Congress for various reasons, uh, an individual senator can block all nominations uh, um, over an issue that they that they hold dear and. Uh, In addition to that, well, this this is for the later discussion on diplomacy, but um, especially when you come to places like Africa or parts of South Asia, we have many countries where the the ranking American diplomat at post is a first tour officer. And was not only do you not have an ambassador, but you don't even have a senior officer at post. Um, And this is in stark contrast to, say, the Chinese who are investing massively in their diplomacy.
2: And Nick, I'll, I'll say what what uh, Tom Hansen is is too diplomatic to say, but uh, we've also seen over the past couple of decades an increasing number of uh, political appointee, uh, ambassadors, in other words, people who bundled a bunch of cash for the president who won the won the election. And then the payback is, hey, I'll send you to France or I'll send you to Australia or something like that. And And career diplomats are the ones who are truly prepared to take on those roles. And so we miss out significantly, not only on the interagency process, but also on American long-term national security interests when we have, you know, amateurs (laughs) who are, who happen to have donated nicely to a presidential campaign, uh, take over as a U.S. ambassador in some critical place around the world, rather than a career diplomat like Tom or, or Ross Wilson or, you know, any of the other folks that are members of Global Minnesota and other organizations here in Minnesota itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, so Ron Newman is an example of a foreign service officer who served at that level. And I know when he comes to speak here, one of his, I predict one of his main uh, points that he'll want to discuss is the need to retain a professional diplomacy.
1: Yeah, so that ties in nicely to kind of our next topic of that second ambassador visit, which, as you mentioned, will be in October, bringing the former ambassador and former deputy assistant secretary of state to Minnesota. Uh, maybe you could expand a bit more on what role does the deputy assistant secretary play? And um, we've kind of talked a little bit, but maybe more about how we can improve and maybe modernize the State Department.
0: Yeah, um, that's a huge topic. We could have a whole podcast on that <laughs> at some point. Um, well, we'll have a whole event on it. So hopefully I helps. know, exactly. So and and Ron Newman is really the guy to talk about this. He He is focused on this at the American Academy of Diplomacy. Since he's retired, he's very much focused on the future of diplomacy, and he's the best person you could have on this, actually. So a deputy assistant secretary is part of a, of a bureau, of a, usually a regional bureau, um, of a bureau team. So ordinarily, say the Bureau of Asian Affairs or the Bureau of Middle Eastern Affairs, where Ron Newman was, a, a, he, was he was in the Middle East uh, Bureau, you have an assistant secretary of state who heads up that bureau, and then you have a number of deputy assistant secretaries, each one of whom has a portfolio within that larger regional bureau. So um, I, I'm not aware what Ron's was, but um, it's kind of divided up that way. And so the deputy assistant secretary becomes the point person reporting to the assistant secretary of state who, of course, then reports to the the secretary of state or the deputy secretary. You know, in being in Washington, uh, you know, a DAS, as we call them, is working um, closely with the embassies in his in his uh, portfolio, uh, with meeting with the ambassadors, receiving ambassadors, you know, receiving high level delegations uh, from countries in his in his area as they come in. They tend to be the main liaison with Congress. So the Deputy and secretary will be often called up uh, to to hearings, the assistant secretaries too, but the deputy assistant secretary will be called up to subcommittee hearings even. With Watergate, and Vietnam, there was a revolution in Congress where they just created a zillions of committees and subcommittees. Tip O'Neill, the former Speaker of the House, used to say whenever he met a, a freshman congressman whose name he didn't know, he'd just say, hello, Mr. Chairman assuming that that person had already become a chairman of one of these committees so so yeah it's an important position at state and ordinarily it would it would be a foreign service officer today it's not always a foreign service officer in that position
2: Uh, if i I could uh, chime in uh, tom just gave us a phenomenal overview of how the department of state is organized and uh for for the members of global minnesota who will hear this and the, the public as well we also hear on the DOD side about these combatant commands, theater combatant commands that are led by a, a four-star general or admiral from one of the services. And the amazing thing is one of the questions you asked when, when you when you hit Tom up with this, uh, Nick, was, you know, what can we do to improve on sort of organizational structures? And I, I want you to think about this for a minute. We have theater combatant commands in the Department of Defense where these four-star officers are responsible for huge geographic spaces on the surface of the Earth. Uh, Indo-Pacific Command, for instance, is the entire Pacific theater, uh, except for what's you know on the very uh, eastern edge, all the way over to the coastal areas of Africa in and in the Indian Ocean. That's an enormous area of responsibility. You have Southern Command, Euro- U.S.-European Command, dual-hatted as the Supreme Allied Commander of, of NATO, uh Northern Command etc right Africa Command if you think about the interagency process which we've brought brought up in this discussion the theater combatant commands in DOD do not overlay over how State Department is organized geographically and it, is it the Department of Political Affairs is that right Tom
0: yeah that's one of them uh, so the yes. problem we
2: have in the interagency process just in foreign affairs is that the two most critical arms of the government as far as exercising the tools of national power, diplomats and military power, are not even organized to mutually support each other geographically around the world. The foolishness of that is just, has never ceased to astound
0: me. A key part of the State Department right now is increasing diversity. We're bringing in minorities to a much larger degree. The problem is retention. So that's one thing. The other, we have to keep up with the new technologies. You know, during COVID, a lot of our embassies went virtual. And there's a whole field now of virtual diplomacy, um, and that raises all kinds of issues in terms of how you have secure communications and virtual diplomacy. Um, uh, you know, you don't want that to replace the physical diplomacy, but it's, it's, it's important. Within all these changes, uh, as Ron Newman, I'm sure, will argue, we have to keep a professional foreign service and a professional entry process uh, and then protect uh, the influence of that professional group within, at least within the State Department itself.
1: And hopefully this ISNI program will be one of the ways in which we can get some of that diversity and really reach the next generation of, of young leaders in, in America. So um, I guess finally, John, what are kind of the main takeaways you hope the students get from this program
2: and from Global Minnesota's upcoming ambassador visits? Yeah, so the, the ISNI takes place under the Global Policy uh, Division at, at, hum- at Humphrey. Uh, Eric Schwartz, the former the dean of the school, uh, he has come back now, and uh, he's strongly in support of the of the ISNI being uh, maintained year after year. Uh, but we have a, a wide variety of students coming in who have already signed up for the for the program, and more are gonna will be signing up over the next couple of weeks. So we have a nice diverse group of people, uh, students at the Humphrey School and from across the University of Minnesota, who are taking the the course. That'll be great. We're also going to bring in. Uh, we've done this for a number of years now, but we're going to bring in. Half a dozen students, undergraduate students from Carleton, from their Department of Political Science, and also half a dozen students from St. Olaf, from their Department of Political Science. So we'll divide them up uh, equally between the six teams. So that'll be a nice opportunity for uh, young people in the undergraduate uh, degrees to sort of see what this world of uh, diplomacy and negotiation is like. You know, artificially, it's a scenario, but it's still, it's a good, it's a good exposure for them. So hopefully we can attract undergrads uh, to consider applying for Department of State. And certainly the graduate students coming out of the program, like Tom did, applied to the Department of State, took the Foreign Service Officer exam coming out of grad school. That's a great time to try and bring people into the Department of State. Uh, And maybe this gives them a little bit of of that flavor. The other thing that I'm hoping to add this year, uh, which, which I'm very excited about, is by having two mentors for each country team, by bringing in uh, you know, very experienced people in the international affairs arena from Global Minnesota membership and also from CFR Minnesota membership and, and some other things that I have planned, it's going to give the graduate students an opportunity to, to do some, some real networking. And frankly, graduate school should be about networking in many ways because uh, that's where you hopefully are starting to come into your own in your profession. Uh, Graduate school will hone those talents for you, give you some more skills. But certainly, I think the three of us and everybody listening to your podcast will will know this. Something like 80, 85% of all jobs today, it's because of who you know, not necessarily what you know. So networking becomes a critical skill. And it's a great time when you're in grad school to start really learning how to network and giving people the opportunity to network with career professionals who've been there and done that in areas of uh, endeavor where a, a grad student would like to pursue once they finish.
1: Yeah. And that's what we're all about is building that next generation of global citizens. So, um, you know, global Minnesota is just happy to be a part of it. Great. So John, Tom, thank you both so much for joining today and really look forward to working with you on, uh, on a variety of events coming up in October for the ISNE. Thank
0: you. Thank you, Nick. Yep. Thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure.
1: And that's all the time we have today. Just a reminder that the Cyprus event with Ambassador Doherty will be held on October 19th and is free and open to the public. The Diplomacy event with Ambassador Newman will be held on October 30th and is also free and open to the public. You can register to attend both of these at globalminnesota.org. Thanks, as always, to all of the members of Global Minnesota who make our programs possible. Be sure to check out our website at globalminnesota.org to find information about upcoming events, learn more about our international programs, and sign up for our weekly newsletters. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, so you can hear untold stories of international connections each month and catch recordings of our public events. And speaking of public events, you can now save January 31st, 2024 in your calendars as the date for the next U.S. Foreign Policy Update featuring Tom Hansen. Tickets will go on sale in the coming weeks at globalminnesota.org. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon.